be with you this morning. The title of today's message is The Great Commission, Church Planting, and Us. And there are at least three things I want to accomplish in this message. First of all, I want to explain why we're talking about church planting this morning. We've been walking through the Gospel of John together. We're taking a break this morning. I want to tell you why we're talking about church planting and how you should listen to this message as Redeemer Church. And then I want to show you from just a few places in the Bible why we make establishing local churches among all peoples part of our mission as a church until Jesus returns. And then lastly, I want to leave Kevin and Redeemer, the Redeemer Provo team with a few exhortations that by extension apply to all of us. Before we do that, let me pray. Father, I ask that you would come now and help us that you would take your word and implant it deeply in our hearts. I pray that you would enliven our souls with your glory and your wisdom in redeeming a people for yourself from among all peoples of the earth. And I pray that for those of us who are in Christ, we might understand better who we are as a church and what we are to be about until Jesus returns for all of his chosen bride. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, why are we talking about church planning this morning and how should you listen to this message? Well, the main reason we're talking about church planning is very practical. In one week, we'll send off Kevin Rutledge and his family and a few others from Redeemer to plant a church in Provo, Utah, one of the least reached cities in the U.S. with the gospel. And with that send-off, we want our whole church to understand its role in this endeavor called church planting and bring everybody onto the same page in conjunction with this send-off and in conjunction with the support they'll need in coming months and even years. Kevin and the Redeemer Provo team may be going out from us to establish a new work, but we are still part of them and partners with them in the work. We've also commissioned other church planters before, such as a couple of brothers who are now still serving in Asia, and Dusty Devers, who moved to Elgin, Oklahoma last year with the same goal. But very few of you were able to participate in those separate evening services that we had when we commissioned them. And I don't think we as leaders were all that effective in helping you catch the vision and see your part along the way, uh, especially as a whole congregation. And I hope today's message at least starts us on a trajectory that equips you further for these partnerships in the advance of the gospel. In fact, I hope this message even awakens you to see that this send-off in one week need not be our last one. No, our prayer to God should be that this send-off becomes the ongoing pattern of our labors as we preach the gospel in this 
city. As we make more disciples, as we train up more leaders, as, and as we commission them to other new works across town and abroad to other states and other peoples who need the gospel and healthy congregations caring for their souls. In other words, I hope this message instills within us a Christ-trusting, grace-filled, other-oriented, missions-minded expectation for the Lord to multiply us in this city and beyond. When you listen to these things today, don't just listen for Kevin's sake. Don't just listen for Provo's sake. Listen for your own sake. Because if you're a Christian, Christ's priorities in building His church and spreading His gospel and seeing local communities transformed with His presence should become your priorities. Yes, we should desire to see people added to our number here in Fort Worth. We should also aim to mature ourselves here in Fort Worth. But never should we pretend like we are the be-all and end-all of Christendom. Christ's vision for the ongoing establishment of healthy Churches worldwide keeps us from turning inward and becoming so preoccupied with our own strengths and even our own problems that we forget the very purpose for our existence as a church, namely to treasure Jesus' glory in the gospel and spread His glory among all peoples through the proclamation of that gospel. A crucial part of this purpose for our existence And spreading the gospel is the activity of also planting churches. But before you just take my word for it, let me show you from a few places in the Bible why we should keep planting local churches part of our mission as a church until Jesus returns. First of all, we need to see that the Great Commission itself envisions the establishment of local churches. The Great Commission itself envisions the establishment of local churches. Jesus' words in Matthew 28 are likely very familiar to many of you. He says to the church, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Usually when people teach on this passage, they rightly, rightly focus on our responsibility to introduce as many individuals as we can to Jesus and to the forgiveness of sins that comes through a relationship with Him by faith. But many times the stress on individual conversion overlooks that making disciples includes more than initial evangelism and individual conversion. Making disciples also includes helping these converts identify themselves publicly with Jesus and His church. Baptizing them. And it also includes ensuring 
these same converts are then regularly instructed and held accountable by the church in all that Jesus commands, teaching them to observe. Not just teaching them, filling their heads with information, teaching them to observe. I say they're held accountable to Jesus' commands by the church because Jesus himself says it in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. There, in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches his disciples how to practice corrective discipline in a local church when unrepentance characterizes an erring church member. If a professing Christian is not following Jesus' commands and refuses to repent again and again, the matter is then to be brought before the church. The church even has the authority under Christ to excommunicate the person for their failure to submit to Jesus Christ's rule. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This was another way for Jesus to say, the way I will demonstrate my heavenly authority, the way I'm going to put it on display, my heavenly authority on display on the earth is in a people, my people, called the church. I'm going to put it on display through a visible, identifiable assembly of people who submit to my rule and authority in all things. Essentially, baptism and teaching are part of making disciples because the church is part of God's plan in training and keeping disciples walking in step with their new identity in Jesus Christ. Now hear the words of the Great Commission. Making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe all envision the establishment of visible assemblies of people who have been freed from the power of sin, who are growing every day in their love for God and His purposes in the world, and who submit to the reigning Lord Jesus. The goal of the Great Commission is not merely the conversion of individuals, but to see obedient, disciple-making fellowships of believers within every people group of the inhabited earth. Jesus has church planting in mind when He charged the disciples with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he had already talked, because he had already talked to them about the church in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18. A second reason we make church planning part of our mission. The apostles themselves established local churches where the gospel is received. The apostles established local churches... <clears throat> wherever the gospel 
is received. So not only was church planning envisioned as part of the Great Commission, but when we fast forward to the Spirit-empowered mission of the disciples, we actually witness churches being planted even as early as Pentecost. We see people believing the gospel and, and, excuse me, and being baptized and identified with the local church in Jerusalem. Mm. Turkey bacon. Sorry. <clears throat> Got to go for the real stuff. <clears throat> so, so even as early as Pentecost, we see people believing the gospel, being baptized and identified with the local church in Jerusalem. As John Stott put it, Uh, He says, the Lord did not add them to the church without saving them. And he did not save them without also adding them to the church. So even as early as Acts 2, we see the outworking of the Great Commission and the establishment of a church. The ongoing mission to the Gentiles then sheds further light on church planting. Later in Acts 11, Christ establishes a church in Antioch through the preaching of those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen. Paul then teaches this church for an entire year. Chapter 11, verse 26 says in Acts. And by the time we get to chapter 13, the church in Antioch sends off Paul and Barnabas to do the Lord's work. And what was this work? Well, when we read chapters 13 and 14, we see that it included preaching the gospel, making disciples through baptism and instruction, just like Jesus said, and establishing them in local congregations with elders. So in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in in Antioch, in Pisidia, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then they leave there because of persecution and make their way over to uh, Iconium. And they do the same there. Preach the gospel. And people believe. And then more persecution drives them down to Lystra and then to Derbe. And they do the same there. Preach the gospel and make many disciples. And then we get this note in chapter 14 of Acts, verse 21 to 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They had done more than just win individual converts and let them roam about. They had done more than that, hadn't they? they? They also taught them to gather into local assemblies such that Paul and Barnabas on their return trip could even 
appoint elders over those identifiable assemblies. Paul then follows the same pattern on his second missionary journey. We even get another example of him planting a church in the city of Corinth in chapter 18 of Acts. He does the same thing, preaches the gospel. People believe. They're gathered into a church. He teaches them for about a year and a half. And later on, when he's even writing back to the Corinthian church he planted, he says, I planted. What he's meaning is, I planted the gospel in Corinth. Or, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation for the church in Corinth. Even one of Paul's co-workers, Epaphras, is doing the same thing alongside Paul and Barnabas. He's just doing the same thing in different cities like Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis. We see that in Colossians 1 and the end of Colossians 4. He's preaching the gospel and then gathering together the disciples to form local churches. And so goes the pattern as Paul and his co-workers obey the Great Commission. Even to where by the end of all Paul's journeys in Asia and Macedonia, you read some of it earlier, Paul says basically, I'm done with the work here. There's not enough room for me to work anymore. Too many churches all over the place, like Fort Worth. I need to go to Spain. Right, Kevin? Go to, gotta go to Provo. There's 300-something Baptist churches in Tarrant County. i got to get out of here. I need to go to Spain where there's no access to the gospel. I texted Dan Hilbers the other day and asked him if he was uh, still sure he wanted to pursue going overseas with, with Amy. I hope you're okay with me sharing this. Rachel told me to ask you, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven. Yeah, so we'll do that. We'll practice that here today. So, so I texted Dan, you know, you still sure? This is after one of his sermons, just as a word of encouragement for his preaching. You still sure you want to go overseas instead of staying at Redeemer? He texts me back, I am more sure than ever. <clears throat> and, uh, and then later I said, well, well, what if Redeemer all took up Russian, you know, so that you feel more at home? Um, then he responded, if Redeemer were the only church around and the rest of the Metroplex had no access to the gospel and there were threats against those who convert, then I'd consider it. (laughs) I love the way these guys think. I love the way people who have this vision think. And there's another brother, Kevin Rutledge, who's thinking the same way about Provo, Utah. I've got to get to Provo, right? You can't even... You couldn't hardly say it in some of our staff meetings without crying. I've got to get to Provo and plant the gospel in Provo and see Christ named and worshipped by a people there. Not just a few scattered individuals. He's taken some with him that they might, those who the Lord may convert might be added to their number. He wants to see Christ treasured among assembly, a visible assembly of people sold out for Jesus so that the world, the world can look in at, at these people and witness the supremacy of Jesus in all that they do say and think and feel in their relationships with one another in the world. It leads me to a third reason why we make church planning part of our mission. 
namely life under the new covenant, necessitates churches being planted among all peoples. Life under the new covenant necessitates church planting. When Jesus died and rose again, we celebrate this when we take the Lord's Supper together, He inaugurated a new covenant, right? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He inaugurated a new covenant in which everybody who trusts in Jesus, this goes for anybody in this room today who trusts in Jesus, everybody who trusts in Him would receive the forgiveness of their sins. They would be given a new heart that actually desires the things of God. And they would have the Holy Spirit Himself indwelling them and guaranteeing that they will obtain God's inheritance until the day Jesus returns. The Spirit, between Jesus' resurrection and His second coming, the Spirit would then empower them to live according to the new covenant Jesus set in place through His blood. But here's the thing. During this period between Jesus' resurrection and His second coming, this new covenant has numerous commands that sound like this. Love one another as I have loved you. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace with one another. Through love, serve one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Question. How many of those commands can you obey as a solitary Christian? None of them. How can you live under the new covenant in isolation from the people of the new covenant, assuming there are other converts nearby? You can't. How does somebody observe all that Jesus commanded, everything in this book, that Jesus commanded. Not just the words He spoke when He was here on earth, but, but these words, the apostles I just read of, these are all Jesus' words. How does somebody observe all that Jesus commanded, just like the Great Commission says, without the local church? You don't. Or let me press it home a bit further with Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will all people know you are Jesus' disciples if there's never a persuasive, tangible expression of love for one another in an assembly? They won't. 
fact, later on in John 17, he prays that the church itself might be one, and this oneness of the church together is, is actually a, a witness that the Father has sent the Son into the world. The corporate nature of life under the new covenant precludes us from forming a mission as a church that leads converts to believe they can enjoy salvation as a solitary believer while neglecting devotion to the gathered church. Even the Spirit gives a variety of gifts to each of Jesus' followers. Every one of Jesus' followers has gifts that the Spirit gives to them, not for them to enjoy in isolation, but for them to serve the well-being of the local church with whom they assemble. It's 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Therefore, whenever we plan to preach the gospel among a people without the gospel, whether that's Provo or East Asia, we shouldn't overlook incorporating the ones who believe into a community where new covenant life might be enjoyed. We don't, we don't want them missing out on the life under the new covenant. We want them gathering into a people that are celebrating the new covenant together. One last reason. We want to be a church-planting church. God displays the glory of His wisdom through local churches. God displays the glory of His wisdom through local churches. In Ephesians 3, verses 8 to 11, Paul says this, "...to me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles..." Remember, we saw this already. I'm going from Antioch to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. He's preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, and get this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why did the church in Antioch commission Paul and Barnabas to plant churches? Why did Epaphras work so hard and struggle in his prayers for the churches he planted in Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis? Why are we sending out in one week Kevin Rutledge and a team to Provo? Because there's nothing more exciting than seeing God's glory magnified when a people bow their knee to Jesus Christ. There's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more exciting than seeing people submit their lives to Christ. People joyfully submitting to Jesus' authority was essentially an outcropping of the age that is coming. When Jesus' kingdom will cover the entire 
earth. Local churches are outcroppings of the age to come. When nations, when the nations embrace Jesus alongside the Jews embracing Jesus and they come together in one people, something amazing goes on display that's been in accordance with God's plan all along. When they embrace the gospel and are gathered into this new, these new covenant communities, the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, both good and bad alike. The church is God's object lesson, His tangible reminder to the universe that through Christ's death and resurrection, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has broken the power of sin over a people, and He's bringing all things into subjection to Christ. They're the first evidence of it. That's what the local church is. Disciples gathering in healthy local churches magnify God's glory because they put on display publicly his, the, the, the outworkings of His redeeming work in Christ. Therefore, church planting is part of our vision as a church and something we should grow to embrace so that the glory of God's wisdom spreads. So that's why we make planting local churches part of our mission and strategy as a church until Jesus returns. It's bound up with a great commission. The early church... And the apostles gives us a paradigm to follow. Life under the new covenant demands we not leave converts by themselves, but gather them into the body where they might experience life in that covenant together. And the glory of God's wisdom goes on display when the saints assemble around Jesus' lordship. So with that said, I now have four brief exhortations for us to consider as we move forward in this particular church plant in Provo and in coming years as we look for God to do it again, both through us and in Provo. Right? We're not planting a church in Provo and they just become Redeemer Church in Provo forever. They're going to be planting more and more and more churches. Lord willing. So these exhortations are first for you, Kevin. Since we are appointing you as an evangelist and church planter over the team that's heading to Provo. But I think we'll all find that these exhortations are applicable to all of us. So here they are. We just talked about God's glory going on display. Number one, enliven your own soul and the souls of others with the glory of God. Enliven your own soul and the souls of others with the glory of God. Neither you nor the people around you have the resources that you need for life and ministry. Your desire to evangelize a people hardened to the truth, your zeal to plant a church in a land that's full of deception, your love for the neighbors around you and even the people serving beside you, all of these good inner passions will eventually grow cold if you're not fixed Upon and rooted in and drawing from the all-satisfying, kaleidoscopic glories of the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
When Peter exhorted the leaders of the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he said this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The glory that comes from God undergirds Peter's charge to the leaders of all the churches. Paul describes the Christian life this way, as as one that rejoices in the hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, 2. And then let's not overlook that John gives the seven churches in Asia one heavenly scene after another in the book of Revelation. And he does it to remind the church that despite what they're experiencing down here on earth, keep looking to God's glory up there. Because that's what the whole of your eternity will enjoy if you persevere and cling to God's promises in Christ. If you are to find sufficient food to feed your soul, your family... God's church and those you encounter daily, then you must be feasting on the infinite glory made available to you through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given you access to the glory of God. The glory of God that you had fallen short of, Romans 3.23, right? You now have access to it through faith in Christ. The glory of God will never disappoint you because He is the infinite wellspring of holiness and wisdom and truth and joy and love. He will never run dry when you come to Him. He will never feel strapped to provide you with what you need. He will never tire of supplying you from His fullness. He will never be bothered by your coming to Him for more sustaining glory and grace. Even through suffering and temptations from the devil and perhaps Seven years of not seeing a single convert like Adniram Judson experienced when he went into Burma. (laughs) How do you endure seven years like that? Drawing on the glories of God. Enliven your soul and the souls of others, not with the fading satisfiers of this age, but with the eternal glory of God made accessible to you by Jesus Christ and God's Holy Spirit. Second, keep the gospel central to the life and ministry of the church. There is one way in which we can say Paul planted the church in Corinth or Epaphras planted the church in Colossae. But a much closer look will reveal that what they actually planted in these cities was the gospel. And it was Christ who actually built the church on that gospel. Let's take, for example, the ministry of Epaphras. This is from Colossians 1 and Colossians 4. It was Epaphras who planted the church in Colossae. He entered the pagan city. He preached Jesus Christ. He discipled the new believers and he labored hard on their behalf. But never once, when Paul writes to this church in Colossians, never once 
Does Paul exhort the believers to build their church around Epaphras or around Epaphras' extraordinary gifts? Instead, Paul repeatedly exhorts the church to build themselves upon Epaphras' message. It wasn't ultimately the man, Epaphras, who was effective in penetrating the darkness of Colossae, but the Lord Jesus himself as the good news was heard and the Spirit brought forth the new birth in people. Through the preached gospel, God destroyed strongholds and transferred many Colossians into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Believing the gospel also meant that God forgave their sins. God reconciled them to Himself. And God delivered them from the tyranny of evil rulers and authorities. And God secured their hope for heaven where Christ Himself reigns as head of the church. In short, the Lord saved these pagans through His gospel. The Lord Himself planted the church through His people. Jesus is the chief church planter even now. His message of truth gave birth to the church in Colossae, and His message of truth would also go on to transform the church in Colossae. The gospel message is one, Paul says, uh, when he writes to them in chapter 1, verse 6, it's a, it's a message that is bearing the fruit of faith and love among the believers, and it has continued to do so since the day they heard it from Epaphras himself. And this same gospel would then sustain the church till the end when each disciple would meet the Lord in glory. In fact, even in Colossians 2, we hear Paul instructing the church like this, As you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. The church was to continue in this. So your task, Kevin, and our task, Redeemer, is nothing short of what Epaphras and Paul practiced in making the Word of God known to people and making Jesus Christ known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints in the Gospel. We should proclaim nothing less than Christ in Provo and Christ in Fort Worth and God will be pleased to grow new churches from the Gospel seeds that He plants. Right? Paul says, I planted, Apollos comes along and waters, but it's God who causes the growth. Then, once the church is established on the gospel, we should teach one another to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.23. Number three, continue equipping people to speak the truth in a dark and demonic world. Kevin, that you have successfully encouraged a largely devout homeschool community of youth into regular evangelism efforts in some of the hardest contexts that are less than comfortable speaks volumes about your patient equipping with the truth and diligent leadership in helping them speak the truth boldly. Do not waver in equipping more people to do the same as you enter a very dark land full of what the apostles call false gospels and human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes, and teachings of demons, and the exploitation of others with false words, 
and doctrines that anticipate no one less than the Antichrist himself who denies that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You know better than I that you are not entering neutral turf when you move to Provo. You are entering hostile turf disguised with a facade of piety rooted in self-righteousness. We experience nothing less when we move about in Fort Worth. The world is darkness. We've been learning that in the Gospel of John. The world is hostile to Jesus. And your task, like that of Paul, is to speak the truth so that God opens people's eyes, so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. We might walk in the flesh, these bodies, but have, but Paul says that we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Pursue this with all the might that God mightily inspires within you. Lastly, pray for God's light to penetrate the darkness. Listen to what Paul says of the church planter Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, always struggling on your behalf in prayers, in his prayers. Epaphras acknowledged his his inadequacy to plant churches. He knew that ultimately he was unable to affect any change in the people. He could preach the gospel, but any spiritual transformation in the people was ultimately God's doing. Standing mature and fully assured in the will of God was not something that came naturally to people, but supernaturally through prayer. And Epaphras knew it. He didn't place his confidence in strategies or methods or models or techniques to bring results. He placed it solely in the Lord. Therefore, he, it says he struggled, literally he agonized in prayers to God on behalf of the churches he, pray, he planted. Remember that your awesome participation, this is for all of you, your awesome participation in God's purposes is not laboring apart from Him, but laboring in dependence on Him. God saved you to serve in communion with Him. Isn't that amazing? He didn't just save you and leave you to yourself. He saved you that you might do so in communion with Him. We cannot produce healthy churches on our own, much less conversion. If you see unhealth in this church, it's time to get on your knees and pray. 
Only God has the gracious power to convert sinners and to humble saints and to establish churches. And He is excited for you to speak with Him about that work. He wants to save sinners in Provo and Fort Worth, but only through you talking to Him about them. Even to His own Son, He says this. This is of His own Son from Psalm 2.8. Ask of Me, Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And to all united to His Son by faith, He says the same thing to us. Pray in this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see Epaphras praying. Imitate his faith in this regard. Make your requests known to God. Ask him to shine in the darkness, to dismantle the enemy's schemes, to open the eyes of the blind, to convert the hopeless, to humble the proud, to cleanse the church from every defilement, to raise up new leaders in Provo, to to join you in the work, to remove leaders who shouldn't be leaders, and to establish healthy congregations. Don't just, don't just ramble in prayer. Struggle in prayer like Jesus did in the garden for you. God has given the Spirit to you too. And His groan is always Abba. So those are my exhortations to Kevin and by extension to all of us who join Kevin in this work, whether by geographically relocating ourselves with him and Sunday, or by regularly praying and giving toward the work while we stay here in Fort Worth. Planting and sustaining healthy churches out there begins, for la- begins with laboring for, for healthy churches in here. We want to see healthy churches that treasure God's glory in Christ, center their lives upon the gospel, speak the truth in darkness, and pray for God to accomplish much through our efforts.